Dear John Part 2, if you got a Bible, take it out. And I want to challenge our church to start bringing Bibles to church, okay? It is church after all. I mean, come on. All right? So let's pull out our Bibles. If you've got a smartphone, you can buy, do the Bible app. But here's what I'd love you to do for us. Check it out. Just go to waterschurch.guide on your app or on your phone. Um, I already have it loaded up here because I've noticed that since we got rid of the paper notes, a lot less of you are actually taking notes. So I just want to remind you that there will be a quiz at the pearly gates. Okay? Specific, specifically on this message. All right, so want to make sure that you're taking notes. Pull it out, waterschurch.guide, on your phone, or, and I, I do believe we did provide this for you as the option. We went old school. Oh, listen to that. If you're clapping, you're old. God bless you. Own it. Own it, though. God bless you. We love you. You people have all the money. We need you. Praise God. Uh, <laughs> did that come out of my mouth? I'm sorry. Second, uh, we're in the book of 1 John today, and the title of this message is The Cure for Our Universal Condition. The Cure for Our Universal Condition. How many of you are familiar with this? You know what this is? It's a mirror. But it's one of those mirrors that, and this one's broken, so I'm just trying to wrestle it out here. It's one of those mirrors that... If you look at it this way, you look normal. Can everybody see me? Hello. I can see you. Uh, and then you look at yourself and you think, well, I look pretty good. Not bad. Did a pretty good job on my hair today. Beard looking nice and oiled up. But how many know there's this nasty other side of this mirror? If you flip that over, do you ever have this experience? You flip that over and suddenly you're like, what the? I didn't know that that crater was on my nose. Where did those blackheads come from? Oh my goodness, there's something under my eye. It looks cancerous. And, and, and then some cruel guy put a fluorescent bulb around one of these babies and made sure that it illuminated every possible nastiness in your face. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You have, you have face shock? Anybody ever get face shock from one of these mirrors? And... I never thought about it this way, but I guess I, it can be said that the mirror did not put that stuff on your face. It just revealed it. Amen? Amen. It's not like it wasn't there. You were really that ugly. <laughs> I'm making no friends this morning. I'm sorry. But the mirror just magnified what was already there. Somebody say magnify. magnify. Here's the point that I'm making. I hear a lot of people talking about the state of our world. And I hear this a lot. I can't believe how bad the world is getting. Or... Man, people seem to be worse than ever before. Treating each other worse, acting worse, uh, thinking worse. I, I mean, if you're with me on this, how many of you actually think that? Like, the world's getting worse than it's ever been before in, in history. Well, I, I want to say that like that mirror, these things were always there. 
It's just we have a little bit more amplification into our mind's eye of how bad, listen, it has always been. So here's the mirror that magnifies it for us right here. It's in our hand. And we will be obsessed with a four-inch screen as we look at the things that are happening in our world today and think, wow, this world is going to hell. And some of us might be saying, you want to be even like, you know, you know, Christianizing your thoughts there. Oh, if Jesus doesn't come back soon, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it's always been that bad. We're just getting a little bit more information. Um, like, put yourself in this position. You're on your couch in air conditioning, watching your favorite show, sitting on your couch that you picked out at the store. And how many do this? While you're watching the show, you're also social mediaing and you're scrolling. And before you know it, you're upset about something on the four-inch screen that has taken over your mind and your heart and your anxiety and your feelings. And you've suddenly forgotten about all the good things that are surrounding you at that moment. Like, you're not thinking about the Freon that is flowing through the pipes in your air conditioners so that you can sit in a comfortable 70-degree room, even though it might be 95 outside. And you're not thinking about the comfortable couch that you got from the furniture store, which two strangers delivered to your door and set up for you, and you got it on clearance for 4th of July sale, and all that was taking care of you uh, with other people's effort, and you're sitting there comfy cozy. And you're not thinking about what's going on on the massive flat screen TV that you actually hung on a wall. Like we are living in the day where we hang our TVs on a wall. How many remember when TVs were pregnant? <laughs> you couldn't hang that sucker on a wall. The wall would collapse. My point is, we're not seeing anything new. We're just getting more of it. There's a universal condition for which we need a cure. Because I hear this, what's wrong with the world? What's going on with this world? What's happening in this country? What's happening in this world? Okay, nothing new. Song, uh, Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes. He said, there's nothing new under the sun. Whatever has been will be again, and whatever will be has already been. Somebody say, there's nothing new. So what we're seeing really is just something that's always been there always been wrong, and something for which God provided a cure. In 1 John chapter 1, 8 through chapter 2, 11, we're going to look at God's cure for the universal condition. Now, here's what I want you to write down first in your notes is this. To find the right solution, we have to rightly identify the sickness. If you don't find the right, if you don't know what the sickness is, see, if you go to the doctor and you've got cancer, but he treats you for a sniffle, something's going to happen, and it's not going to be pretty. And here in our country, here in our world, I think that people want to diagnose cancer by identifying it as allergies. There's a cancer in the human soul. There's a cancer in the human heart that Allegra, spiritual Allegra, can't fix. And so right now there's conversations around what, what's going what's to fix the world. 
So what we need is social justice because social justice is the answer to all the injustice in the world. Okay, well, you know, that's an idea, but it might not actually fix the human heart because I've learned, and I don't know if you have, but I've learned that it's very hard to fix someone on the inside from the outside. How many know what I'm talking about? Every parent in this house knows exactly what I'm talking about. You can't fix your child from the outside. You gotta win their heart. You gotta, you gotta speak to their heart. You gotta talk to them about their heart. Or somebody might say, well, it's a lack of education. And so more education, more education, more education. And, and, and we have educated ourselves into oblivion and still people, sometimes the most educated people on the earth will do the most insane things you've ever seen. Or, or maybe it's... Um, uh, income disparity, that's the problem. If everybody just gets more money, or maybe we need to actually just upend the American system. Capitalism's evil, so let's turn to socialism. And I just wanna say, all you're really doing is, is, is exchanging one failed system for another failed system, and I would argue a worse system. That's my argument, but you can have another argument, but that's what I would say. Or maybe you're saying, oh, no, it's about the person in the, in, the, in the offices of power in our country, in our state house, or in our uh, White House. And, and so if we just change that person, then we will begin to make progressive change in our culture, and everything will be better. And I want to tell you, that's just not true. When you have an election, and someone is voted out, and someone is voted in, here's what you just successfully did. You traded one sinner for another sinner. And it's 2020, and you should have said amen much louder than that. I'm not saying vote for so-and-so or don't vote for so-and-so. My point is, let's identify the real sickness. And the real sickness is an old sickness. It's a sickness that's been around for a long time. It's a three-word, it's a three-letter word. S-I-N. Sin. That's the sickness. Maybe some of you think, well, let me get rid of technology. <laughs> Maybe if I just get, get rid of the phone, then I'll be better off. Well, that's not true either because technology is just a tool. It's not actually the cause. I actually read an article from 2012 of a guy, his name is Paul Miller. He's a technology writer for Verge.com, and he did this experiment with himself. He thought that technology was the problem with his life, with his anxiety, with all of his stresses, and so he gave up the internet for a whole year, one whole year of giving up the internet. He unplugged his internet cable, he canceled his internet subscription, and he traded his smartphone for a dumb phone. <laughs> one whole year, and to the minute, he picked up the internet one year later, and he wrote the following article in Verge.com. Here's the article title. I'm still here, back online after a year without the internet. And he says this in the article, quote, one year ago, I left the internet. I thought it was making me unproductive. I thought it lacked meaning. I thought it was, listen, corrupting my soul. And now, one year later, I'm supposed to tell you how getting rid of the internet solved all my problems, made me enlightened, caused me to be more real, more perfect. And his response is no. He says this, what I know now is I can't blame the internet or any circumstance for my problems. I have many of the same priorities I had before. I left the internet, family, friends, work, and learning, and I have no guarantee that I'll stick with them when I get back on the internet. I, in fact, he says, I probably won't, to be honest, but at least I know that my problems are not the internet's fault. 
Let's get rid of this. Let's get rid of that. Let's, let's, let's avoid this. Let's avoid that. No, that's just religiosity. That's just works. That's just, that's just you trying to fix you from the outside in. The problem is inside. And this is exactly what John's going to talk about is what this guy Paul Miller is talking about. It's actually what Jesus Christ himself talked about in Mark chapter 7, verse 20. When Jesus said this word, he said, what comes out of a person is what makes him unclean. What comes out of a person, for from where? From where? Within. Within. Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from where? Within. Oh, you got to say it like you mean it. Come from where? Within. Within a person, and they defile them. So, John, our father in the faith, verse 8 of chapter 1, repeating a little bit from last week, he says, If we say we have no sin, somebody say, Have no sin. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, somebody say have not sinned. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, on the, on the surface, it looks like John is repeating himself. First he says, if we say we have not sinned. And then he says, if we say we have not sinned. No, he's not repeating himself. He's talking about two different things. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, condition. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, action. And here's what he's saying. I want you to write it down in your notes. Sin is something in you before it is something from within you. There's a condition. It's a universal condition. Why did they break my heart? Because there's a sinful condition. I promise to love them for the rest of our lives. And they suddenly wake up one morning and say, I want a divorce. What happened? What did I do? What went wrong? The sinful human condition that's in all of us. Why did they let me go? They're just trying to save money. They're just trying to pad their pockets by letting me go and replace me with someone younger. What's the problem? The sinful human condition inside each of our hearts. I can't believe they posted that on Facebook. I told them that in private. I told them that in secret. And they have the audacity to put that online for everybody to see. What is wrong with them? The sinful human condition inside all of us. And most importantly, you've got to know it's inside you. So even our propensity to look at other people and say, look at how bad they are. Jesus says, you know what that is? That's like looking at a speck in someone else's eye and there's a log in your own eye and you're worried about their speck when you can't even see because there's a huge, massive log in your eye. This, this is, thank you, thank you, because this is good preaching. Just letting you know, you appreciate it. I wish they would. <laughs> no, 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 stop it, too late. Sympathy claps, get out of here with your sympathy claps. First John, our father in the faith, is going to deal with that problem inside of us. And he wants to give us not just the diagnosis, he wants to give us the, the solution, the prescription. Now, I'm going to do something that I don't like to do on Sunday morning. 
I'm going to take us back. I'm going to peel the layers of the text off for a second. And we're going to dive a little bit deeper into first century Christianity. Is that okay, everybody? So we're going to look at the original context. I don't like to do this on Sunday because I think sometimes it's over your head or you're going to just ignore it. But it's so important that you get this. See, John is living in the first century, writing to a first century church in 1 John chapter 1. And he's not dealing with the internet, and he's not dealing with president so-and-so or an election season or whatever you're dealing with or whatever we're dealing with. He's dealing with a heresy in the first century called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, spelt with a G, G-N-O-S-I-S. This was a very popular belief in the first century, and it refers to secret knowledge, Gnosticism, secret knowledge. Gnosticism is based on Platonic dualism. Everybody know Plato? Plato believed that you were two parts in one being. There was the physical being, which Plato said really doesn't matter. And here's why they said that. Because your physical being eventually gets old, it decays, and you die. So it can't be that important. It doesn't last forever. But your inside being, your spirit, this is the real you. And so don't worry about, this is what Plato said, don't worry about the physical you, and by, by implication, don't worry about the physical being of other people or the world, because that's not real. It all decays. Only worry about the inside of you. That's Gnosticism. And this was a first century heresy that really sought to corrupt the first century Christians. Now you might say to me, Pastor Tim, what on earth does this have to do with us and why are you telling, about it, telling us about it? Here's why. In case you haven't realized, Gnosticism is making a huge comeback. What's inside me is real, and the physical me isn't that important. So we have Gnostic um, mantras today, Gnostic mantras today. I've got a couple of them written down. Anytime anyone wants to tell you about their real person as opposed to their physical person, they've fallen for Gnosticism. So there's, I call it, Gnostic morality. Gnostic morality, which is this. You can finish this line for me. Just be true to yourself. <laughs> really? Have you met you? Let's talk to your mom about you. Right? And, and that's Gnostic morality. So I just need to be true. Or, or, or this line. I just need to follow my heart. Or I just need to be honest. Really? Like you're the judge, your inward self. And some of you, you do this on your Instagram. You hashtag this garbage. Just be true. Heart, heart, hands up, praise. <laughs> it's just Gnosticism. Success, now, business leaders, success-oriented Gnosticism. Um, positive thinking. So think it, imagine it, create it. That's just Gnosticism. Listen, you can sit on your couch and think it and imagine it and create it, and if you don't get up and actually put your hands to work, it will never come to pass. Amen. All right? Or this phrase, which is not so much anymore, but in the 2007 it was huge. Um, imagine the reality that you want 
and create it. It's just internal Gnosticism. It's garbage, making a huge comeback into our world. In 2007, there was a book. It was a bestseller. Oprah recommended it. It was called The Secret. Anybody remember this? Had a little seal on it. This is just ancient Gnosticism. It was based on the law of attraction, that if you think right thoughts, then the right things will come into your life. If you think this and you think that, then you're going to make a, a reality for yourself according to your thoughts. And then we even Christianize it. We even biblical Christianize it. We say, well, the proverb says, as a man thinks, in his heart, so is he. And yes, that's true, the Bible says that. But the Bible also says that out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, murders, lies, fornications, and adulteries. So how's that working for you, in the words of Dr. Phil, when you've got evil thoughts, murders, lies, and adultery, and the Bible also says as you think in your heart, so are you. That makes you evil, adulterous, covetous, prideful, envious, and slanderous. Happy Sunday, everybody. <laughs> this, I would say that the archetype of Gnosticism today is transgenderism. My physical body is irrelevant. This is who I am on the inside. And so, oh, science says something different? Forget science. Oh, 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 yeah, the material world says something. No, forget that. The material world isn't real. It's what I am on the inside. And it has created what I call America's favorite faith. It's called meism. Faith in me. Gnosticism. And this is why we are in a rapidly accusatory culture where we're willing to blame everyone and anyone for all of our problems. Can't be me. I was true to myself the whole time. I believed in myself the whole way. They got in my way. And you know what? You know what's really ripping me up inside about this stuff? This is seeping not just into the churches. Listen to me. It's seeping into the pulpits of America's churches. You tune in to some guy on TV or on the internet, and he can't stop talking about how great you are, turn it off. Are you following what I'm saying? You tune into somebody who tells you about how you just got to discover the champion that's inside of you. You got to release all the wonderful potential that's all in you. And you've got a great dream, and God's got a great dream, and everything's going to work out for you. And all you got to do is just keep on pressing on, and everything's going to be. And, everybody, and if anybody gets in your way, you just tell them to get out. Get thee behind me, Satan, because that's what Jesus told Peter. I got news for you. You ain't Jesus in that circumstance. You're Peter. You got Satan, and you need to get him out of you so that God can come inside of you and change you from the inside and make you what he wants you to be. Oh, I'm preaching now. Amen. And I'm telling you, this will save you because if you fall into this trap, you will be clinically depressed for the rest of your life. Don't you understand that this is actually where anxiety comes from? You think anxiety comes from the outside? Mm-mm comes from here because no one ever challenged you on the reality that you need to change. Nobody ever dealt with the fact that your heart was born sinful and sin is not something that you do before it is something that you have. Remember the original sin. Adam and Eve take the fruit 
and they hear the voice of God, and they run for their lives. And when God shows up, Adam's first words back to God is this. I heard you, and I was afraid. Anxiety. Gnosticism, meism, this is the problem with the world. And so I want you to write this down. This is just like the, to finish up this part of the message. The problem with the world is a problem of sin in the human heart. The problem with the world is the problem with sin in the human heart. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Dorothy Sayers, a theologian from the last century, said this, and I love this quote. It's long, but can you just listen real quickly? Here is what she says. The people who are most discouraged and made most despondent by the barbarity and stupidity of human behavior at this time are those who cling to an optimistic belief in the civilizing influence of progress and enlightenment. To them, the appalling outbursts of bestial ferocity in the totalitarian states and the obstinate selfishness and stupid greed of capitalist society are not merely shocking, they are alarming. For them, these things are the utter negation of everything in which they have believed. It is, those, it is as though the bottom had dropped out of their universe. Now, for the Christian, this is not the case. He is as deeply shocked and grieved as anyone else, but he is not astonished. He has been accustomed to the idea that there is a deep interior dislocation in the very center of the human personality. In other words, Christians and non-Christians are both shocked at how bad people can be. But Christians know the real reason why. We understand that there's sin in the human heart. So, diagnosis. Now, prognosis and solution. Point number one, sin solution. Jesus Christ, our defense attorney. Jesus Christ, our defense attorney. Say, why do I need a defense attorney? I thought he was my best friend. He is your friend, but he's also your defense attorney. Okay? And I'll tell you why you need a defense attorney in just a moment. But let's get back to what John says first, because John writes this in chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, did anybody sin this past week? Three honest people. Anyone does sin, we have an, say the word, Advocate, that in translation could be advocate, could be defense attorney. It's a law term. It's, it's someone who stands alongside of you. And it says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When you get accused of a crime, you do not, you do not try to defend yourself. Here's what you say. Lawyer, anybody ever watch the 2020s and the Datelines? My wife makes me watch these shows. I can't stand them. But anyway, I watch these shows, and, you know, somebody gets accused of killing their wife or somebody gets accused of killing their spouse or some loved one, right? And then the, the person, they get brought in. They get brought in by the, the, by the sergeant, the police detective, and they start just grilling them. And I'm always, like, watching them. Like, Man, if you had just watched a couple of Datelines, you'd know you shouldn't have a conversation with this person. Your only word should be what? Lawyer. Okay, just some advice for all the future criminals among us. Okay, just uh, because you need somebody who knows the law and somebody who's not accused to defend you because you might implicate yourself in something that you never did or that you did do. 
And John is going to tell us that we have someone like that that's with us and for us in front of the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He was, never, he was accused, but he was innocent. He passed the test of the wilderness. He passed every test of sin and temptation, and he stands before the Father righteous on your behalf, and he sits, and he stands there, and he intercedes for you that you might be accused, but he's got something to say about that accusation. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 8. It says, who then shall condemn us? No one. For Jesus Christ. Notice, notice that Paul doesn't say, who shall condemn us? No one. You're, you've been true to yourself. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, here's why no one can condemn us. Because Jesus Christ died for us and was raised for us. And he is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand pleading what? For us, three times, for us, for us, for us. We've got a defense attorney before the Father. You say, why do I need a defense attorney? Is God accusing me? No, Satan's accusing you. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says this, the accuser of the brethren has been cast down, the one who accuses them before God day and night. I want to talk to everybody who has that voice in the back of their head that tells you you're, you're a loser, God doesn't love you, God, has God knows all the things about you, he saw what you did last night, he's going to kill you. Oh, oh, yeah, the reason why bad things are happening to you, that's because of all the sin in your life, and you deserve this, and you should go straight to hell. And that voice is not the voice of God, and that voice is not my voice, that voice is the voice of your, de your demonic accuser who has been assigned to you to make you feel worthless about yourself. The Bible says in Job chapter 1 that Satan showed up in the presence of God with the angels, and it says on the day of the members of the assembly of the heavenly host came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan, the accuser, came with them. And what did he do about Job? Job was a righteous man, and he even found an accusation for Job. He said, Doesn't, does Job fear you for nothing, God? You put a hedge around him. He's only he only worships you because of all the good things that you've done for him. You know what? Satan doesn't just accuse us of the bad things that we've done. He accuses us of the good things we've done and says we've only done them for bad reasons. To that end, Jesus Christ comes and says, I've got something to say about that. Yeah, they may have done those things, and yeah, he might be right about all that those things have, uh, all those things that went on in his life. But I have stood in his place, and I bore his sin on the cross, and he or she has placed their faith in me. And so, when you look at their sin, I want you to see my blood, and my blood has covered their sins once and for all time. And God the Father, the heavenly Judge, pronounces the judgment case dismissed in Jesus' name. Point number two that John gives us for our solution is sin solution is number two, Jesus Christ, our cleansing agent. You say, okay, that's all well and good, Pastor Tim, but I still feel sinful. I still feel like I'm no good. I still feel the, the residue of those accusations against my spirit. I hear you. I hear you. Let me give you a little bit of background information on my Sunday morning. <laughs> How many of you... You have this little conversation in your head. You say, I can't go to church. My week this week, I was bad. We had a huge fight as a couple. And, oh, man, all these things. How can I go to church? All right. Now, imagine you have to preach. <laughs> Don't you think that I get the same stuff? Only I get it magnified because then he's like, oh, and now you're going to go tell all those people how to live. 
And so I had the residue in my mind of all the things that I've done that are not good. And the Bible says that's, this is the moment that you've got to remember that Jesus Christ isn't just your defense attorney defending you before the Father from the devil's accusations. He's your propitiation. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation. Somebody say that fancy word, propitiation. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours also, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, propitiation is a word you might get like tripped up on, but let me give you a very simple definition. Propitiation means to wash away or cleanse away. He is the cleansing agent. He cleans you. The Bible says in Hebrews that he sprinkles you with water to cleanse you from a guilty conscience. See, this is why you got to come to Jesus Christ, because he doesn't just take care of your sins penally and substitutionary at the cross. He doesn't just pay for your sins. No, he does this spiritual work in your heart, whereby he gives you a release from the guilt and the shame and the anxiety and the fear and all that stuff. And he does this supernaturally through the Holy Spirit that is in us. This is why you don't just come to church and you don't just do the thing where you just sit there and watch the pastor perform for an hour. No, as the word of God comes through the sermon of the message that you actually receive the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit through the announcement that what has been done for you on the cross is eternal and complete and you are refreshed through the preaching of the gospel as the washing of water happens over your spirit and over your heart in Jesus' name. This is why you got to keep coming back to church so I can wash you again. Not with my words, but with his words. So I used to have this belief that God had this heavenly VHS tape in heaven. And when you die, you go up into the throne room and God goes to the the little archive section and he pulls out your VHS tape of all your nasty, right? And he comes and he puts it in the heavenly VCR and he rewinds. He says, we're going to start from the beginning. What, What am I doing? A VHS tape? What is this, 1984? You know we don't do this anymore. Some of you are like, what the heck is a VHS tape? Yeah, that's because you're a millennial. Okay, uh, let, me, let me upgrade. Let me modernize this illustration. How about this? In the heavenly realms, there's not a VHS tape. There's a Netflix documentary of your life in heaven. <laughs> and all the things that you ever did broken down into seasons. Season one, childhood, temper tantrums, mischief. Season two, teenage years, the dark years. And everybody would have me watching your season and your grandmother would be there, shocked. And then season three, 20 and 30s, harsh responses to my children, fights with my wife, pride and arrogance. Season four, the 40s and 50s, welcome to season four, everybody. Respectable sins like envy, gossip, covetousness, slander. And then we would just sit there, we'd just watch this for the whole time. We're like, oh man, please don't play that part when I was 16. Please, please don't play that part when I was 35. No, I don't want anybody to see that. And I got good news for you, Jesus is the cleansing agent. He's the blood that washes away your record. So I want you to see it. I want you to see the blood of Jesus just washing away the Netflix documentary and cleansing it all before the Father so that your sins, though they be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, the Bible says. Romans 3, 23 says, 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as, there's the word again, what? Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Hallelujah. Not good works, not religious opportunities, not, not, not climbing the ladder of religious success. Faith. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he cleanses me. And I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm accepted in the family of God. Can we give God a good amen and a good praise offering in this place? Number three, salvation's results. If you're taking notes, write it down. Because it's not just that sin has been given a solution. There's a result. Somebody say result. And John, in 1 John, is a good pastor. Because he's not just interested in informing you of doctrinal matters. He, he wants what your, he wants what you believe to affect how you behave. So salvation's result is obedience to God by loving one another. Jesus actually said that the whole Bible can be summed up in two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. And by the way, loving your neighbor is the antithesis of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is loving you, and your neighbor is in the way of you being true to you. Loving your neighbor is saying, it's not about me. I'm, I, I am not the main character of a drama written by God wherein everybody around me is a supporting character to my dream life. I am on this earth as a part of what God is doing to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And I do that. I do my part by loving other people. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Let's look at this. And by this, somebody say, by this. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Okay, this is, this is pastoral work right here. You want to measure if you're a Christian? You want to you see if you're there? Here's what he says. If we keep his commandments. And then he says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Ouch, John. But I told you, he pulls no punches. He's a tough talker. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Now, let's talk about keeping his word. Keeping his word is remembering what I've told you this sermon. Keeping his word is remembering that it is not by works that you are saved. It is by God's grace that you are saved. Keeping his word is coming back every weekend to hear me scream at you, to remind you you're a sinner and God's a good savior and Jesus Christ cleanses you and accepts you into the heavenly family, period, full stop. Now, if we're all honest, we'll be able to confess today, we forget that. Any, anybody like me, you forget that Jesus Christ paid it all? Anybody like me? Hmm? The guilty stuff comes back in the head. You start to think you're no good. You start to think you're just a failure. You'll never get your act together. And you need, you need somebody to come alongside and say, wait a second, let me just throw some grace at you today. Let me throw some word at you today. Let me throw some Jesus at you today so that you can remember that the, the Prince of Peace has come and brought peace between you and God so that you could live at peace 
with yourself and others. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. You keep reminding yourself of this. In a moment, we're going to go before the Lord's table of communion. We're going to remind ourselves again. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. See, there's this, there's this version of Christianity. It's got to be destroyed. It's got to be killed. This version of Christianity. Listen. Well, I, I put my faith in Jesus, and so now it's not really about how I live. It's about what I believe. But your belief always affects your behavior. You're all sitting in chairs right now that you believe have the fortitude to support your weight. If you didn't believe it, you would never sit there. What you believe about God has to shape how you behave. You say, I know, but sometimes I don't do it. I know, because you forget what you believe. And so you get reminded about who you are in Christ, about God's love for you, about God's grace toward you. And now you can be a little bit more gracious toward that person who's bugging the life out of you. Now you can forgive the spouse. Now you can love the child, not as a friend, but as a parent. Now you can actually discipline your son instead of trying to appease your son. Why? Because you don't need your son's approval. You already got your heavenly father's approval. Now you can actually date with wisdom and discretion and not desperation because you know you're loved eternally by your Father who is in heaven. And you know that he's never going to bring someone evil into your life when you put him first and trust in his plan for you. Is this helping anybody? Because you're awfully quiet. That's all right. I know. 95 degrees out. Fine. Whatever. Verse, verse 7, let's continue. Behold, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Man, John, what is it? Is it an old commandment or is it a new commandment? He says it's, it's an old and new commandment because it's one that we forget. And the one that we forget most often is we forget to love. We forget to love our brother or our sister. And so then he says this, verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother, verse 11, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about this. The reason why we hate other people is because we never let the light of God shine in our hearts to remind us that they're just a human as well. You're just a human. How many know it's really hard to hate people once you get to know them? You know, you know why we're so hateful right now in our country? Because we can watch each other from a distance on social media and judge each other. We never know. We never talk. We never find out. But if you get to know somebody that you hate or you were trained to hate, it's amazing how quickly the hate turns to empathy and compassion. This is the darkness getting scattered by the light of God's grace and God's mercy. This is why Jesus will say this. He'll say in chapter 6 of Luke, verse 35, love your what? Gosh, I hate when Jesus says stuff like that. <laughs> Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to who? 
He's kind to the evil. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. It's amazing that Jesus gives us the prescription for being like God, and it's nothing like modern-day Gnosticism. Gnostics wanted to be their own God, meism. And the ironic thing is, the only way we actually become like God is when we stop loving me and we start loving others. It's hugely ironic. So I want you to write this down as the last thing in your notes. The only way to kill meism and truly love God, be like God, is to be cleansed from your sins and love others. The only way to kill meism and truly be like God is to be cleansed from your sins and love others. In a world of people clamoring to be their own God, the church of Jesus Christ has a holy responsibility to say, God, I surrender. I need you to forgive me and cleanse me and make me your son or daughter so that I can love people who are nothing like me because that's what you did for me. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. It's a dark world, friend. It's a dark world. And, and, and we can get on our social medias and we can get on our, on our phones and we can search it out and we can find all the reasons in the world to say, this world's going to hell. There's something seriously wrong with people. I don't understand. I'm giving up. I don't even feel like I want to live anymore. But every once in a while, we get a glimpse of the light. This past week on social media, a six-year-old boy from Wyoming blew onto the scene. His name was Bridger Walker. He was outside playing with his four-year-old baby sister when an attack dog started running straight toward his sister. And six-year-old Bridger Walker ran in front of the dog between himself and his sister. The dog latched onto his cheek, ripped it open. He was rushed to the emergency room for a two-hour surgery, and 90 stitches later, Bridger Walker put his life on the line for his sister. His aunt posted on social media. She tagged all the Avengers, the actors in the Avengers movie. They all reached out and said, you're a true hero, you're a true hero. Imagine having Captain America tell you that you're the real hero. Six-year-old Bridger Walker's dreams came true. And you have to think about being that little girl and you have to think about, oh, to have a brother like that. Can I tell you something? You do. 2,000 years ago, the devil and hell and sin and the grave were running toward you. And Jesus Christ stepped between you and all that and took it on the cross for me and for you. That's the gospel. You know what they said? They interviewed Bridger Walker. They interviewed this six-year-old boy. They said, what made you do it? He said, I just figured if someone had to die, it should be me. 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped between you and the devil and said, if somebody has to die, let it be me so that you can live.